Hello, everyone. This is Scott, and on behalf of Derek and Casey, we'd like to send our deepest condolences to Rich Chamberlain and his family and let them know that our thoughts are with them. This one's for Jerry. Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Casey, Derek and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place. Prehistoric woman, stay away from me. Prehistoric woman, Carrie, let me be. Don't come a hanging around rhinos or your slaves in skimpy clothes. I got more important things to do. Spend my time ruling with you, a woman. I said, stay away. Prehistoric woman, listen what I say. Hello and welcome everyone to episode number 54 of the 1951 Downplace podcast for March 2016. And if you haven't figured it out yet, Casey, Derek, and I will be covering the Hammer Films uh, classic Prehistoric Woman from 1967. Produced, directed, written, and most likely catered by Michael Carreras. Now this film is a follow-up to 1966 One Million Years B.C., Prehistoric Woman reused sets and costumes from that previous film, but lacks the special effects and locations. In spite of that, this film does have something, and that is the star, Martine Bestwick, who commands the screen at all times. Do we think that's enough to carry this film? Do the not-very-special special effects seem a bit too prehistoric? And what about that rushing rhino? Well, with apologies to the Guess Who and Commander Cody and his lost pilot airmen for what I did to their songs, we'll dive into Prehistoric Woman right after this. My pappy said, son, you're going to drive me to Skid Row if you don't stop driving that hot rod rhino. One million years B.C. cost a lot of money to make. So to cut costs and maybe recoup just a little bit more money, Michael Carreras and Hammer and Company started production on a movie called Prehistoric Women. The beginning of 1966, they shot for a little over five weeks and produced a movie that may make you question the credibility of your hosts here at 1951 Down Place. I am <laughs> Derek M. Cook from Monster Kid Radio, joined as always by bloody good horrors Casey Criswell and Disney Indiana's Scott Morris. How's everybody doing? Doing well. I've uh, given my um, – been worshipping at the altar of the white rhino, so I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> 
you say that so enthusiastically. When you say that, I expect this this chanting, <laughs> dancing thing happening all around you for a good five to seven minutes for no reason. I was doing that before the recording. I'm actually still in my outfit that I was wearing. Yeah. Are you wearing the little skirt that that girl was wearing in the, <laughs> and in the modern it. times? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that took, what, less than two minutes to get to this point? Um, you, you sound like you're surprised. You know, you're right. How long have we been doing this now? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> good good point. Good point. This is uh, What episode number is this? This would be episode number 54. Wow. And we waited for 54 episodes to get to this awesome, awesome movie. <laughs> wow. So the movie was called a couple of different things. Prehistoric Woman in the UK. No. That's how it was released here. That was how it was released US. here. The UK, it was Slave Women, a much better title. Or Slave Girls. I'm sorry, you're right. Slave Girls, a much better title. <laughs> it was also 20 minutes shorter in the UK. I don't know which version I watched. I'm assuming that what's out there now is the longer version. Yes. Right? The, one, the one that's named Prehistoric Woman. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's what I ended up watching, and uh, let's see, it was on a DVD box set that I had, but I also found some other places for it, and yeah, it runs a good, <laughs> you know, I'm just going to giggle through most of this. Oh, man. About, I don't know why. <laughs> about 90 minutes or so of a couple of dudes fully clothed and a whole bunch of women not. Yeah. Well, did did you read that this was originally planned as the A feature on a double bill with the old dark house. <laughs> wow, I had That's read a that combo. Was, yeah, <laughs> I had read it was released with uh, the Devil Rides Out. That's what it. Uh, it sat on the shelves uh, for almost a year before it was released, and then it was a support pe- feature for the Devil Rides Out. But originally, it was going to be a double bill with the old dark house. That would have been an interesting evening at the movie theater. Wow. Yeah. If, it would. if we ever have a 1951 downplace movie marathon. One of the nights is going to show <laughs> prehistoric women in the old dark house. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh man. I might be the only one in the theater, but we're going to do that. <laughs> well, now I want to go in computer special edition style fan edit Tom Poston into prehistoric women. <laughs> 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 yes. Wow. Please do it. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, a 1951 Downplace Film Festival would be amazing. Running prehistoric women in the old dark house on the same night might not be for some people. <laughs> well, maybe we'll have it, you know, at the, we'll have some, some more classic films. And then at midnight, we start uh, the double feature. <laughs> Stick around till midnight, folks, when we all start going downhill. <laughs> this is how we reward you for sitting in the movie theater through three or four different quality movies. <laughs> We're going to give you the old dark house and a whole bunch of women dancing around in their bikinis. Now you are stuck. Yes, we're going to lock the doors before the <laughs> film starts. <laughs> the doors have been locked. Yes. <laughs> we will only let you go if this statue of the white rhino out in the lobby shatters 
Or if it rolls out of the way. <laughs> or rolls out, yes. <laughs> Just give it a good push. <laughs> oh. All right, so... Um, oh, and know, while we're talking yeah. about the white rhino statue in the lobby, we cannot guarantee if you touch its horn, you're going to wind up in a uh, prehistoric time with a tribe of women. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, no guarantee. <laughs> yeah. Big people sign a waiver as they come in. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it, it might just be me or the fact that, uh, you know, Deadpool is still kind of in my mind. I haven't seen it in the recent, but when he reaches out for that rhino horn, I wasn't sure what he was exactly going to do. <laughs> um. <laughs> okay. Would you say the movie's a little phallic? A little. There's, there's a couple <laughs> moments. A couple. Oh, boy. So 1967, 1968's when this was released. Um, yeah, as a follow-up to 1 million years BC, and okay, 1 million years BC, I don't remember which episode we covered that in, but despite having some pretty cool dinosaur effects, it kind of fell flat for us, right? I mean, that's, I'm remembering that correctly, aren't I? Uh, yes, and that was episode number 24 from August 2013. The dinosaurs were great, but then, of course, Harryhausen elevates everything he's involved with. Our struggle with that movie had to do with some of the acting, some of the choices to not have any of the characters speak dialogue, and just the pacing and the story overall was a little a little weak. I suppose it did pretty well theatrically, box office-wise. How this movie kind of spun out of that, I have no idea, because it's – such a bare-bones, low-budget affair, outside of Hammer just wanting to save a few bucks and reuse some sets and costumes, and, well, one actress at least. I, I don't really see the through line here from 1 million years BC to this. Well, it was very much on the cheap, because not only were they using the sets and the costumes, they didn't go anywhere. It was all obviously yeah. shot on a soundstage. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's crazy talk. I saw those opening credits. <laughs> the stock footage? <laughs> <laughs> yes. How about those fantastic moon transitions? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was all shot uh, at Elstree. And it shows. Unfortunately, it, it kind of shows. I never got the impression that anybody was outside at any time outside of the stock footage. Uh, the green screen or blue screen or whatever screen effects they use to try to bring in some outdoor shots to the indoor photography, it just, I don't think it worked very well. It, it feels very claustrophobic in a way to me, even though it's supposed to be outside. Who did the production design on this? I'm sure it wasn't Robinson. Oh, if you did the design, I don't know. A lot of this feels like they just used whatever they had laying around. Where they got the rhino, though, that was – that's what I'd want to know. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. There's really not a lot of familiar faces in front of or behind the camera here. I mean, Michael Carreras, obviously, big deal at Hammer. I'm one of the head guys, right? And then Martine Biswick had been in One Million Years B.C. She graduated to top billing in this film. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, let's see. The music was by Carlo Martelli, and he had done The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb and a few other things from the 60s. Uh, yeah, I just – it doesn't feel very hammer to me. 
it's just kind of hard to look at and say, yes, definitive Hammer film right here, because it, I just don't recognize a lot of the people. No, it's definitely not got a Hammer film at all. Uh, and I also think yeah. not only the fact that there's not very many people we recognize, that it's just, it doesn't have any style at all, which is one of the things that I've come to expect from most Hammer films, no matter what uh, genre they're doing. There's always a certain kind of style that you could look at and say, yeah, this is was made by Hammer. This doesn't have anything like that at all. It's just very wooden, very by the numbers. This is the story we're going to tell, and there's no flourishes to it. Well, this movie, unlike most of Hammer's catalog, this movie strikes very, very strongly the chords of American B-movies. Oh, oh. yes. Uh-huh. So that's a change that's a change up for them. So maybe there was an experimental time. It's possible. Actually, uh, yeah. this film reminded me and, and this is going to be an odd comparison, but it reminded me a lot of Abbott and Costello go to Mars. <laughs> wow. <laughs> if you've ever seen that film <laughs> and, and and I'll get to it. If you've ever seen the film, Abbott and Costello are astronauts who end up on Mars that's run by a all-female society that is very um, tyrannical type of society. And the Abbott and Costello immediately become objects of desire by the women because there's <laughs> no men around. And in the end, they overthrow the society and set the sexual balance right. Isn't that pretty much what happens in this film? Sure, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> but there was there was a lot of of American B sci fi movies in the fifties where astronauts would go to another planet and found out that it was run by women, and usually yeah. the leader of the women uh, falls in love with one of the astronauts. I mean, you've got. Uh, there's Queen of Outer Space. Um, there was Catwoman on the Moon. There was also Amazon Women on the Moon, which is not <laughs> quite the same. <laughs> wow, I'm 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 glad you realized where I was going with that because you answered that really quickly. <laughs> I will forever have that movie burned into my brain because of what happened at uh, Monster Bash. <laughs> When we went to Monster Bash a couple of years ago, have we told the story on the show anywhere? I I don't know if we've told it or not. I don't think so. so. Have it's been a while. So we went to Monster Bash a few years ago, and Scott and Tracy and Brenda and I we shared a hotel room. And see, Scott was in the room by himself. I don't know where our wives were, but I came back to do something, get something, whatever. And I walk in and Scott's in the room by himself watching TV and there's this topless woman walking around on the TV screen. And it, and <laughs> I, I was like, what are, you, what are you watching? It was the pet house, the penthouse or pet house pet segment. From Amazon uh, Women on the Moon. <laughs> yeah. Which makes sense knowing Scott, which, you know, of course. I mean, yeah. And, and what was kind of funny, we sat there and we watched a good chunk of it. Eventually our wives showed up and we watched the rest of it, I think. But um, wasn't exactly what I was expecting to walk in on when I came to the hotel. <laughs> it was perfect timing there. <laughs> oh, it was perfect. Oh, wow. So was she. Anyway. Um, yeah, no, I see what you're saying here. Uh, it does have a B-movie vibe quite a bit, pretty strongly. Was this ever done on Mystery Science Theater? 
I don't think it was. was no, it? it was not. The only hammer they did was Moon Zero Two, wasn't it? That's correct. Okay, because I could see somebody having fun with this, or at least trying to. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. What could you say during those extended dance sequences? So. <laughs> I don't know, but I got the distinct vibe of uh, by the end of it. Uh, I totally had a MST3K style riffathon going on through the credits in my yeah. head. Yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> you, you were mentioning the lack of style, and I don't know if that's a Michael Carreras thing. I know he is responsible for you know spearheading Hammer through the glory years, right? I mean, he deserves a lot of credit for everything that he did. I do feel like a lot of times when he sits in the director's chair, we're missing something a little bit. And and I don't know if he was really meant to be a director. I mean, he did do one of the, a couple of the Mummy movies, which I love. And I don't know if I love them because of his direction. But I don't know. It just seems – I mean, lack of style I think is the best way to put it. And maybe it's just because we've been spoiled because we've seen so much – Incredible direction with people like Sangster and Fisher and all these others, right? I don't know. Well, not only was he in the director's chair, didn't he write this film? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he wrote it. uh, He used a different name. Uh, He used the name Henry Younger for the screenplay. But yeah, he wrote it too. Which I suppose, you know, if you walk into the warehouse and you look and see exactly what you have left over from one million years BC, you go ahead and he's going to write a script around what he's got. Probably in the course of a day or two. And <laughs> there you go, right? Now, I may be the only one that's, that's going to make this comment, but I had the thought while watching the film. I know Casey earlier said this has a lot of B-movie, American B-movie. I also had this is a lot of an Ed Wood style of a film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Orgy of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. As soon as you said Ed Wood, uh, some of the things that I read about it can have some Plan Nine comparisons, and I get that. But to me, Plan Nine is a heck of a lot more epic than this. <laughs> yeah, this this is like Ed Wood has a poster, has a title, maybe has a couple sets, and he writes a movie towards it. And I think oh. that's what exactly happened here. Yeah. Has a poster, has a title, and breaks into a couple of sets. <laughs> <laughs> What do you mean they're throwing away these perfectly good costumes from 1 million years B.C.? Get those out of the dumpster. We can use those. Don't tear those (laughs) sets down. I need those caves. (laughs) Yep. This movie left us speechless, apparently. So uh, what what do we got here? We want to talk about the cast a little bit. We we mentioned the director uh, and the writer, Martine Beswick. Now, I like Martine Beswick a lot. She was my favorite part of this film. She's great. And she's giving it her all in this movie. Yeah, she, she knows she's – I think it was pretty apparent to everybody that they're not making a blockbuster, but she didn't hold back. She she was full in. Unfortunately, she was the only one, but yes. <laughs> what are you I talking don't know. I about? Thought Ted Stry- I thought Ted Stryker was pretty good too. <laughs> <laughs> we broke Scott. <laughs> Ted Stryker. Wow. It looked like him, didn't it? It did look like him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she is the best part for sure. Indeed. There's no no question. 
Um, and she'd done uh, what one million years BC, and I believe we probably talked about some connections the last time we talked about her in one million years BC. I'm sure Scott will bring it up again. But she uh, she also was the woman side of Doctor Jekyll and Miss Hyde. For yeah, Doctor Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Sister Hyde and yes. Apparently, she had a lot of fun making that one, which I'm sure we'll get to at some point, right? Yeah. Yeah. One quote I found from her. Um, this film was named the worst Hammer film at the Fanix convention in Baltimore in July 1994. And Martine Bestwick was there to accept the award. And she was quoted as saying, we used to argue about who was the worst one. Now I've got the proof. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, and I've got something from uh, the Hammer Glamour book. Let's see. We took it seriously insofar as we went at it full tilt, but we knew it wouldn't be award-winning. We had a lot of fun between takes. I remember Michael asked me to stroke the rhinoceros horn, and everyone collapsed in hysterics. So it sounds like they were having fun between takes, but she was just going full bore. Just way over the top, and I loved it. Oh, I did too. Every, every moment that she was on screen, I was just loving the film, and it was a severe drop-off when she wasn't on the screen. Yeah. You know, that's the problem when you have a, a film with such a strong presence in one person. It's, it's just impossible to kind of maintain that level when you're not casting <laughs> Ted Stryker. What? <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, I'm, and the Ted Stryker we're referring to is the character of David, played by Michael Latimer, who was not very good actor in this film. <laughs> he had a career. I mean, he, he was an actor. I, I don't know. Maybe he just didn't like the material. This is early in his film career. Who knows? I mean, he did a lot of television. Uh, he would appear in a Hammer House of Horror episode uh, down the line as well, but... Yeah, the 13 reunion playing uh, Dr. Bradley. But, you know, yeah. There just was nothing to him. He he was there to, we needed someone to, to fall through time, through a wormhole, through something to get back to the prehistoric women. And he was our unlucky guide who, who was unlucky exactly well actually. i think we were unlucky yeah <laughs> he had lots of pensive stares he did and i all the way through his performance i never understood did he really want to be with carrie or martine bestwick's character or did he really want to be with um and a Roni uh, Sarah character. He didn't show interest in either one. No, he didn't. <laughs> no, not at all. It, I, it took her. It took the uh, Roni's characters. Is it sorry? Sari? Saria? Saria? Psoriasis? Whatever. <laughs> I'm sorry, too. Yeah, it, it took her bursting out at one point. <laughs> it took her at one point uh, ex- uh, I can't even talk now. I'm all <laughs> exclaiming. It took her saying, no, I release you from your promise to really even try to understand what was going on there. 
because there is no indication whatsoever outside of a couple of leering stares. And I'll tell you, you know, when, when you stare leeringly at a woman like that, that that lets some know that you're interested, right? Well, the the bad thing was, I mean, that that explains my college days. But you know, I don't know. <laughs> he he has the leering stare at Soria Serrero a couple Sorry. times. But he actually sees Martine Bestwick naked twice and doesn't stare at her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the first time. That, I'm sorry, go ahead. That, uh, Sarias is, is, is in love with him because he runs into her in the woods when he first teleports back there and she's trying to escape and he pretty much tackles her and throws her down and then the other girls come up and catch her and she decides that she's in love with him and he's, you know, an upstanding man that's not going to do her wrong. Well, I think she also mentioned something about there's some sort of prophecy or some sort of thing that he is supposed to fulfill of someone from the outside, a man coming in that will help them. And she then automatically figures it's this guy. Well, doesn't he also hit her at the beginning? Oh, yeah. He slugs her. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly that's going to make her love him. Right? Sure. Yeah. Well, it's the 60s. It's a different time. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, when did the legend come up? I, I don't... What? Because yeah, that the comes up... The only thing I remember oh. about the legend coming up is that the, towards the end of the movie, after everything hit, finishes up in prehistoric times, and she says, well, the prophecy's only half full. I'm like, okay, what prophecy? <laughs> yeah. Well, there was one scene early on after he shows up when he gets thrown in a cell and she's already in there and she makes some comment that he's the chosen one coming to help him help them. You were supposed to be the chosen one. <laughs> there could be only one. Striker, 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 striker. <laughs> Stop calling me Shirley. <laughs> Through the first part of the film, she seems kind of like this ditzy blonde who's just going to get everybody in trouble. She she suddenly takes on this this role of importance, explaining the legend to everybody. When when did that happen? I don't. And and, and then about halfway through the film, she becomes the de facto leader of the blondes. Well, yeah, the other one got married off. I guess married off I, to the devils. Yes, to the to the black <laughs> devils. Oh, okay. <laughs> Okay, politically correct, this is not. The black men are all villains. <laughs> they're all bad, and they're they're taking the blonde white girls away. Uh-huh. <laughs> Where the white women at? <laughs> uh, we, we mentioned, sorry, sorry, uh, Adina Rone, who is no longer an actress. <laughs> she... Uh, <laughs> Did, she went on to become a fashion designer. I thought you say after this film. She <laughs> this was very early in her career, I believe. No, that's not true. Never mind. She did a lot of TV as well in, yeah. in the UK. I want to go back to this book, uh, the Hammer Glamour book, which, by the way, is awesome for the articles. And there's this... <laughs> This very creepy kind of presentation of Michael Carreras 
in the beginning of the entry of Adina Rone's uh, section on the book. Now, she only did Slave Girls for Hammer, but I'd like to read this to you guys. And if you haven't read this book, by the way, The Hammer Glamour, Classic Images from the Archive of Hammer, of Hammer Films by Marcus Hearn, it's really, really good, and not just because of the articles. Um, <laughs> here's the opening paragraph in her section. Michael Carreras kept numerous photographs as mementos of his time at Hammer. The 1966 filming of Slave Girls, the bizarre prehistoric fantasy he wrote, produced, and directed, is well represented with a stack of oversized stills showing bevies of blondes and brunettes dressed in what looked like Rachel, Raquel Welch's castoffs. All right. That sounds a little creepy, right? To, I mean, that's just me. I don't know. But uh, just, just all these stacks and stacks of photos of women and actresses that uh, – okay. That's casting research. Oh, okay. That's casting couch <laughs> research. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anybody else of note cast-wise we want to comment on? or I can't – I don't know if there really is anybody. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of blondes, a whole bunch of brunettes, and a bunch of dirty men that are kept in a cave or a somewhere – yeah. It, it, what exactly were, were the men? Do, uh, we'll get to that when we get into the actual movie. But I like, they were pumping the bellows. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, do we want to dive into some connections? Just kind of get that out of the way. Sure. Rip, rip off the the James Bond band aid. <laughs> James Bond Connections for Prehistoric Women in 1967. I'm going to start off with uh, Martine Bestwick, uh, who played uh, Kari in the film. She also appeared in 1963's From Russia with Love as Zora, a gypsy woman. In the film, Bond, vil- in the film, Bond visits a gypsy camp with uh, Karen Bay, the head of the British Secret Service Station T in Istanbul. At the camp, Bond watches a fight between Zora and another gypsy woman, Vida, who are both in love with the chief's son. Now, Bestwick also appears in 1965's Thunderball as Paula Kaplan, a Bahamian MI6 contact. Next, we have Stephen Burkoff as John in a blink-and-you-miss-him role because he's at the very end of the film. Uh, He also appeared in 1983's Octopussy as Russian General Orloff. His Yay! Com- <laughs> that was my first James Bond movie, sorry. <laughs> His uh, command included the Soviet, Soviet Army divisions in East Germany, and he believed that the Warsaw Pact had a decisive advantage over NATO in conventional military strength, and that advantage is being tossed away by Russian leadership in the name of detente. He's still working today, in fact. He has 131 credits in IMDb. And he is at the very end of this film. Uh, once uh, Ted Stryker gets back to camp, he meets up with John, who just shows up. He's in the film maybe 15 seconds. <laughs> uh, next, we have Roy Stewart. Now, Roy Stewart was an uncredited African warrior, and he plays Coral Jr. in 1973's Live and Let Die. Coral Jr. is a Caribbean fisherman and the son of the Cayman Islander Coral who appeared in Dr. No. Now, he helps James Bond get to the island of San Monique on several occasions. At the end of the film, Coral is the one who plants the incendiary explosives in, Kian- in Kananga's poppy fields. 
And uh, the final James Bond connection I want to make is Nikki Van Dezeel. Now, she provides many voices in Prehistoric Woman. Most of the women in this film are dubbed, and they're all done by Nikki Van Dezeel. Uh, she has provided the voice of many women in Bond films, including both Honey Ryder and Sylvia Trench in 1962's Dr. No, Sylvia Trench again in 63's From Russia With Love, Jill Masterston in 64's Goldfinger, Dominique in 65's Thunderball, Vesper Lind in the 67 version of Casino Royale, Kissy Suki in 67's You Only Live Twice, various voices on 69's On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Solitaire in 73's Live and Let Die, Chew Me in 74's The Man with the Golden Gun, and Dafour in 79's Moonraker. I do have one Disney connection for Prehistoric Woman. And oh, that's, good. <laughs> and that's Sidney Bromley, who was Ulo. He played Hodge in the 1981 co-produced film between Disney and Columbia Pictures called Dragon Slayer. Hodge was the elderly servant to the young oh. wizard Galen Branderwin. I loved that movie growing up. Dragon yeah. Slayer, that is. That's yep. not Prehistoric, yeah. <laughs> And uh, Don Falcos was once again um, gracious in supplying us with some Doctor Who connections. We have Louis Mahoney, who was the head boy in Prehistoric Woman. He appeared in the original series as a newscaster in Frontier in Space and Ponty in Planet Evil. Excuse me, Planet of Evil. He also appeared in the new series as the elder Billy Shipton in Blink. Stephen had a head boy. <laughs> Uh, Stephen Burkoff, who was John, played the Sakari hologram in the new series story, The Power of Three. Uh, Roy Stewart, a warrior uncredited, appeared in Toberman, appeared as Toberman in the Tomb of the Cybermen, and Tony in Terror of the Entons. He also has an uncredited role as a Sarkaean warrior in the Crusade. And finally, Dennis Palmer, uh, who did the choreography for this uh, film, played Corporal Palmer in The Three Doctors. So thanks again, Don, for uh, those Doctor Who connections. Uh, and before we get into the film proper... Oh, do we have? Oh, anyway? <laughs> <laughs> I was doing some research and was uh, doing some Google searches to try to find some more information about this film. And I come across this website called On Movies, and that's O-N-M-O-V-I-E-Z dot com. And I wanted to read their description of this film. And I'm going to read it verbatim. Okay. <clears throat> Do you want to spend some pleasurable time alone or with your friends? Then you should just watch Prehistoric Woman 1967. That is certainly one of the best films of 1967 in genre. Here you, here you would find well-known actors like Yvonne Horner, Martine Bestwick, Robert Raglan are starring in it, and the truth that the acting would bring tons of nice, positive emotions to you. <laughs> duration That's what of the, we want to call them. <laughs> duration of the film is 95 minutes. We think you should like it very much and wish you good pastime with the film. Yo, still waiting? We know that you're going to love this movie. If that's not a recommendation of this film, I don't know what is. In movies with a Z dot com. On movies. With On a Z. movies. Excuse me. <laughs> what, what is that website? That's per, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, wow. Listen to the sounds of the jungle. Listen, but don't stop, for this is Kulnaka country, where legend says no man may pass this way and live, where the devils of darkness guard the ancient secrets of an unknown world of women. Prehistoric women, entombed in a green paradise of evil and witchcraft. Why did you come? I can only believe the fates brought me here. And they brought you to me. Kari, the Amazon queen who rules her secret kingdom with primeval cruelty. Saria, the fair-haired one, the slave of Kari and all her wicked entourage. But your men, where are they? They are no longer men. <laughs> David Marchant, the white hunter who trespasses against the boundary of reality and reason to find another world, another time, another kind of woman. I am queen here. I will not be denied. Tomorrow you will learn what happens to those who try to master me. And see the men who were the prisoners of Kari, the evil one. Ah. You will witness the strange, compelling dance of the slaves. Ah. You will watch the ceremony of selection when a young maiden is chosen to be the bride of the devils of darkness. Ah. All this you will see and more as the legend of the white rhino unfolds before your eyes share the frightening world of prehistoric women. All right, so uh, just real high level plot synopsis here story the story's not deep okay after some stock footage from africa or i don't know somebody's backyard we go to i guess it's africa right i, I don't know I, I guess it would have to be the london zoo i don't know <laughs> there, there's a bunch of people out hunt well not a bunch there's a couple of people they could afford out hunting david ted striker uh, Michael Latimer is the guide here. He's the one that takes these rich white dentists and such out into the African wilderness. To, to, <laughs> oh. <laughs> to, to shoot big cats. Respectful about it, though, I suppose. He wants to make sure his, his customers, his charges, will have a good clean shot so the animal won't suffer because somebody pulled the trigger prematurely. Well... Unfortunately, the guy does pull the trigger prematurely and does not kill his intended target right off the bat. So David decides he's going to go finish it off because these animals are a part of my life, he says, which was an odd statement considering you're out there hunting them. Anyway, he wants to make sure this animal doesn't want doesn't suffer. So he, he tracks it alone, probably because they couldn't afford to hire the rest of the actors to go with him. And he does take care of it. He, he does put it out of its misery. Now, he doesn't go alone. The, well, I guess he does bring his he doesn't bring his charge. He doesn't bring no. his customer. So that's what I'm getting at. Because didn't bring any, didn't bring any other white folk. No, because he brings his. Oh, because oh. that's when they run across the uh, the the first sign of the white 
Rhino, which re- reminded me of Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> really? Yeah. I can't think of anything in this movie that reminded me of a better film. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't you remember all of the um, the tribesmen wouldn't go any farther? Because well, I remembered that. I was more shocked by the it reminded you of something better. <laughs> <laughs> well, just because there was the scene early on in Raiders where the the Sherpas wouldn't go any farther. Right. So when I say he went off alone, what I mean he went off with – out the customers. He only took his tribes people, his 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 hired hands with him, and most of them decided to fall off because they would not go into the territory of the white rhino, black devils, whatever. Eventually he is captured by the natives who speak pretty good English. And they bring him back to their cave and explain this huge backstory bit after a dance number, this huge backstory bit about the white rhino being their god and kind of sort of there's a prophecy and we have to do this until the statue breaks or somebody, I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I did watch the movie. In fact, I watched the movie as early as last night and then rewatched part of it this morning. I feel like a lot of the story does not really hold together. Go figure. I feel like there's a lot that's just like we're supposed to believe that this is – I don't know, man. Am I, mis- am I making sense or am I rambling or do I need more coffee? Well, for the, what, the way I understood it, there was the, the sacred land that the white rhino was there and a group of people came in and hunted the, the white rhino. To uh, extinction basically, To extinction, right? yes. And for somehow a statue of a white rhino then showed up, and this tribe then decided that until that white the white rhino returns, they were going to keep all white men out of this area. Which I understood, but then there's this whole little footnote about it breaking or shattering, and then they're released from their pledge to keep... <sighs> they're going to kill David, right? But... There's this flash of lightning. Everybody freezes. And actually, I thought they did a pretty good job standing still. Everybody freezes in these action poses where they're just about to run David through with their spears. And then the cave opens up and there's this other world out there that David decides he's going to go explore. Well, you you forgot what caused the lightning and the freezing. Oh, Cause, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Did I? Yeah, because Ted Stryker reaches out and touches the horn yeah. of the white rhino. Right. So were they doing their little dance when they showed up there, when Ted first showed up there? Were they doing an actual rain dance? I don't know what they were doing. I know that one woman was doing a hell of a job twerking. <laughs> I, I don't know what song it was, but there's a there's a line that they sing that sounded a whole heck of a lot like Rocky Top to me. <laughs> <laughs> that one woman was... Uh, given David the business in that little dance sequence. I was like, oh, yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. If yeah, they weren't about to her. kill you, man, you're, you're, um, she just picked you for the night, buddy. <laughs> All right. So the cave opens up. He goes and explores this new world because his captors have all frozen solid. And this is where he walks into the world of the prehistoric women. It's pretty much the exact same world that he came out of to begin with and he doesn't seem i don't know there's just no this this is no look of shock or wonderment on his face it's like oh well i'm just gonna go over here now you know 
And I think that has to go to the the woodenness of the character characterization that we talked about earlier. We do meet Saria. Saria. She's running. And their initial confrontation, we kind of joked a little bit about this, about how she attacks him. She tries to bite him. He decks her to make her stop. And I'm not giggling because I think hitting women is funny, but it's just kind of ridiculous. Eventually, he's uh, taken by the brunettes. <laughs> yeah, that, that was Martine Beswick out there bathing, right? Yes, it was. Yes. I mean, at least it was supposed to be her character. I don't know if we ever saw her face, did we? Or was this from the back? You saw her face before she walked out from behind some plants. Yeah, Yeah. we don't see any actual nudity here. She does do a little bit of nudity in uh, Sister Hyde, but no, there's no nudity in this film, even though everybody's wearing these fur and leather bikinis and showing pretty much everything else off. Um, She obviously was naked in the shot because there's a, a camera shot from behind her. And the water level comes up just to her lower back, and she's not wearing anything up top. It does make me wonder if that was her or a double, though. True. I don't know, but it's yet yet another point in the movie where Ted Schreiker's standing there with Martine Beswick, totally naked, standing there full frontal in front of him, no reaction whatsoever. No reaction at all. I don't know. I, I thought there was a flicker of his eyes kind of going down and going back up to her face. Like, oh, look at her eyes. You know, but yeah, other than that, they go back to their little place. And is this pretty much the same location that he was brought to before when the angry natives? I mean, is it the same set? I think so. I I mean, clearly it's the same set, but it's the same. I I think there's just more bushes in the uh, modern times. (laughs) That sounds bad in context, but. I thought they were like plants. Prehistoric. T- anyway, um, they bring him back, and there's another dance number. But this time, instead of a bunch of natives, it is a bunch of blonde women dancing around. And we cl- quickly get this setup that there's this brunette versus blonde. Well, not really versus, but the brunettes are the dominant group of women here. The blondes are subservient. They're the slaves, and they're not happy about it. Not that being a slave of anybody would be. You know, something to be excited about. But there is this kind of stirring of there could be some rebellion here. In fact, one of the blondes attacks Martine Beswick. Throws a pineapple at her. Well, how dare she? Where do they get pineapples <laughs> in Africa? I don't know. Magic? That magic cave? I don't know. And uh, I want to get – remember remind, – uh, excuse me. Well, flustered now. Remind me to get back to this – resulting fight scene if you can remember i'll try to remember as well but i want to make a comment about the resulting fight scene when we're all done here when i'm talking about the movie overall there is a little bit of a struggle between the blonde the angry blonde the rebellious blonde and martine beswick where martine beswick shows that she just doesn't tolerate any kind of insurrection first she says if you're going to throw food on the ground well then all your food is going to go on the ground and they knock all the slaves food down then there's the fight martine beswick has stopped billing so you know she's going to win and the only thing that would have made that fight scene a little bit better for me, <laughs> okay, there's a lot, but what would have been nice is bring out before, the royal jello. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to go there, but perfect. Never mind. Doesn't matter what I was going to say. That's what they needed. They needed more jello wrestling in this movie. 
right? Now, uh, yeah. in, in all seriousness, what they needed in is a stable of Hammer films with some blood. There's very, very little blood in this movie. It's pretty bloodless. Yeah. There's Lots a food little thrown bit. on the ground. A lot of food thrown on the ground. The, the only thing that what I was going to say is this whole food fight se- sequence, this whole bit, it seems to be set off by one of the blondes yelling out, well, now there's two more mouths to feed and we don't have enough food anyway. After Martine Beswick kills the blonde and walks off, I would have loved for her to say something, well, now there's one less mouth to feed or something like that, just to kind of give it this little punch. <laughs> you wanted an action film one-liner. Is that what you're wanting? I, I really did. <laughs> I was going to say, so you wanted her to be John McClane? <laughs> yes. I actually, no. No, I actually... I don't want to see Bruce Willis dressed like that. <laughs> I actually enjoyed the end of that fight. Because oh, it's very good. And that's what I want to get back to. But, you know, it's very, very good. But, you know, please. Because Martine Bestwick, she's going to put down this revolt right away. So she grabs her knife, big, big, huge knife, and goes down to confront the blonde. And near the end of the fight, she just tosses the the knife away and gets this evil smile on her face because she's backed up the blonde to where they're, they've got a pig on a spit. And she just goes over to the blonde and pushes her back into the pointed end of the spit. I thought that was kind of an ingenious kill. Yeah. Well, not only that, she also exerts her power very well because she does that move where she kills this girl in the bat, on the end of the spit, leaves her body lie there in the sand, and then makes the blondes dance for her again. And the one their leader of the blondes comes up and says, well... My girls are sad. It's hard for them to dance. And she's yes. pretty much like, I don't care. Do it anyways. I love the line. When the hearts are heavy, the feet can't be light. That's a great line. And Casey's right. But I want to get back to penetrating the blonde from behind with the pork stick. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I wanted to comment on later. But I'll go ahead and comment on that now. <laughs> See? There we go. We broke Scott again. Everybody take a drink. Um <laughs> The stroking of the rhino horn is not the only phallic thing here. You know, <laughs> there there is some male fantasy happening here, and more so than a lot of Hammer films that feature a lot of women in scantily clad uh, or scantily uh, bikinis. And I, I feel like there's a way to, if I can get serious for a minute, <laughs> there's a way to look at this film as more than just a B-movie. That you can start to, if you really want to work your head around it, take this kind of uh, psychosexual approach, rub, throw in a little Ambrose Bierce's incident at Owl Creek Bridge, and, and you can see some things happening here. There's this wish fulfillment happening, and I'll get back to that at the end. Well, it's a little bit kind of uh... – well, like I said before, it kind of feels like an American B movie. It also feels like that stretch of uh, women in prison type films. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It's I, not you know obviously they're not in prison, but it's the obvious. It's the same thematic elements. Yeah, I, I agree totally. I mean, you, you've got all these women in dominated roles. But they're still strong, even though they're wearing clothes that you would normally associate with women who are being dominated. It's and there's rebellion. Yeah, I mean there are some interesting things happening here. It's probably easier and more fun 
to look at the movie and kind of get caught up in the, well, it's a bunch of women in bikinis and boy, this is a bad movie and I love it anyway kind of stuff. But there are some things happening beneath the surface if you really want to look at it uh, in that way. Anyway, <laughs> Kari wants David to be her man. And at this point, there are no other men. You don't see any other men on screen. So wh- where are all the men? What happened here? And is Carrie wanting David to be hers so that they can breed? Like, what's going on? Well, David turns her down. No, not going to happen. <laughs> not going to do it. Yeah. Not, not <laughs> so Ted Stryker finds out what happens to all the men here. There are men. They're, they're still alive. They just happen to be in the house of pain. I mean, they happen to be in the, uh, the cave <laughs> behind here where they open up the door and you hear everybody screaming. Well, we'll see how you are once we put you in here for a little while. And here are all that's the men. A, that's a great scene too, because at least I thought so, because you have no indication that there's anything behind that door that she's standing in front of through half the movie. Then all of a sudden, just to prove a point, she has her guards throw the door open and you hear all these screams coming out. It's like, whoa, where did that come from? What's in there? <laughs> <laughs> what is in her back door? Um, and then they put her back there. <laughs> and, man, you know, I try real good to be, you know, all age friendly over on Monster Kid Radio. But I come here once a month to you people. <laughs> so this guy, he's still broken. Uh, they throw him in this cave, dungeon, jail cell where they have chains. I don't know where the chains came from or the metalwork. Now, I know they had some spears and knives earlier, but it would seem to me like making a chain is a little bit more complex than making a stabby pointy thing. That's why they had a bellows. Uh, that's true, which apparently is the only thing they do back there is just pump the bellows and make fire yes. all day long for whatever fire reason. Fire bad. Yeah. <laughs> fire bad. I, I don't know. And and one of the men even helps to shackle him. So was he not quite a slave? Was he like the slave boss? I don't know. But this is setting up some sequences for David to get a very convoluted backstory about the white men coming and hunting the white rhinos to extinction. And then the black men come and they teach the black men how to be mean and they teach the women how to hate. And I don't know what. So this is an environmental film. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Uh, It was a massive info dump that made no sense whatsoever. It was kind of convoluted and all over the place, right? I mean, you really had to be paying attention and not blinking and getting up to get a cup of anything to drink during that scene. You really had to be paying attention. And even then, I don't know if it helps. Apparently, there's a window in this little cave jail room, though, right? Because you can kind of see and hear what's going on outside. And Ikari meets with the black devils well, at that's, night. That's first after she bows down to the, the white, white rhino. rhino statue. Which I thought was interesting that her devotion to the white rhino was actually legit. I felt like they could have gone to where she knew it was just a symbol to keep control over people. But no, she was just as wrapped up in this quote unquote religion. And I don't know if that's even appropriate to put in air quotes, but this religion is everybody else. I also thought it was interesting that the slaves were also kind of into the religion. In fact, one of the things, the first thing that Carrie does against the blonde insurgent is take away the necklace that identifies her as part of this group of people that worship. So that seemed like a big deal to her. Yeah. And that was also I took part. That it was, I, thought, I took that as it was some kind of talisman of protection or something maybe. I don't oh, know. okay. Yeah, because that's also part of when they get married to the Black Devils, they have to give that up as well. Huh. 
What, no, what, I, what I thought this see? happens to the white women. No, I, <laughs> I just stopped the podcast and didn't strike. No, I was I was going to agree with Casey. I thought it was a, a protection against the Black Devils. And once it was taken away, the Black Devils could take you. Gotcha. I, I would have liked a little bit more explanation about this, the rules of this religion, how this all worked. <laughs> I mean, you probably could have shaved a few minutes off the crazy dance scenes to get there. I don't think there the, – the problem is I don't think there was a – True nothing in the script that would describe what you're what you're wanting there yeah true are you saying you want to sign up for their newsletter derek well i have had this white rhino size hole in my heart for a long time (laughs) (sighs) okay you know what i'm I'm gonna try to get back to this here and uh, david i guess is allowed to come out of the cave and approach kari and and Admit to wanting to be with her. Well, that's after he talks with. Um, yeah, he talks to sorry because she's also thrown into the cave. Right. Right. That's uh, what you were going to say. Yeah, because sorry. At well, at one point, there's the the wedding where the leader of the blondes is chosen to go with the black devils, which then right. makes uh, Saria the de facto leader of the blondes, and she knows that um, Ted Stryker is there to. Um, be this profit fulfilling person. So he, she's going to go talk with him. She sneaks into the cave where all the men are and tells him that he needs to get close to Kari. So he could basically be their spy. So then he does buddy up to her and I mean, they get some cuddling on. I mean, you don't see him making out or anything, no kissing, no sex, nothing like that. But well, you missed the, does... the second nude scene where he sees her nude. Well, it still yeah, doesn't but react. He, we don't see her. Yeah, no, no, we no reaction. So, I mean, because Kari likes her bubble bath. Oh, she. Where'd the bubble bath come from? <laughs> Where's the Bed Bath and Beyond here in the prehistoric woman world? Well, she but, did say that if part of his. If he dedicated to him, himself to her, she did say that part of his uh, tasks would be to mix her oils. Her perfumes. Yes. Mix my perfumes. He's on board. He says yes. He says yes. And <laughs> there's no characterization here. You don't get to enjoy whatever journey David happens to be on here because Stryker plays it so flat the entire time. So one note. No he's emotion. Not, no emotion not, at all. Yeah, it's not that he's unwatchable. He's just kind of a cipher going from scene to scene to scene. He may as well have been a moving prop, you know, to point the camera at. If you want to know what's going on with the story over here, we'll send David because the camera follows him. Or Michael Latimer. I don't know. I don't know whose fault this is. I don't know if it's the director. I don't know if it's the actor. I don't know if it's the writing, the script. Not getting paid enough. I don't know. But he hooks up with Kari. Kind of. Sort of. You don't really see anything, but. He becomes hers for a short period of time. Eventually, uh, Sari has had enough, even though she believes in this legend, sort of. She also blurts out, and we alluded to this earlier, I release you from your promise. You don't have to be with her anymore. I thought that, she was jealous. Yeah, I thought it was yeah. a jealous thing. I was like, what? What? I don't. I thought it was totally a jealousy thing because the plan was working so far. Yeah. So well, I don't get. And you don't get enough with her to see the conflict in her either to kind of warrant this. 
I don't know. Resurrection happens. Resurrection. Insurrection happens. <laughs> no, I say resurrection because I got a she vibe off of this for some reason or other. So anyway, insurrection happens. Uh, the Black Devil's coming. You know what? There's a big fight scene at the end and everything's fine at the end. Can we move on? <laughs> if your resurrection lasts for more than four hours, you may want to see a doctor. <laughs> and he'll mix some oils for you. <laughs> <sighs> Oh, okay. Uh, Scott mentioned earlier too the way that uh, Martine was killed with the white rhino. There's actually a real white rhino that shows up, right? No. Well, I don't think so. <laughs> not, not for real. But there's one that's a little more animated than the one we saw before. Are we supposed to believe that that was actually a real one? I never quite understood because it. Yeah. They never really say, is it supposed to be a real one? Is it supposed to be some sort of specter? I don't know. Because if it's if it's supposed to be a specter, then I can give it a little more leeway in the way that it's shown. <laughs> no, go ahead and say it. Before we started recording, you were calling it the Hot Rod Rhino. It is. It's a Hot Rod <laughs> Rhino. <laughs> because <laughs> Kari sees this rhino from ac- across the jungle. It's like, ways there in the jungle and she immediately sees it as their their god basically and starts to bow down to it and the rhino attacks but it doesn't there's no movement it just starts it's kind of hard there's no movement of the legs it just starts levitating (laughs) it's it's on a board obviously it's on a board with wheels or on a track you know clearly it's (laughs) <laughs> you know, for a movie that kind of decided to use all the leftovers from 1 million years BCs, they could have used some leftover you know, stop motion animation here. But instead, they just had a white rhino statue that they pushed around on wheels. And I think you <laughs> nailed it. And when you said that, Scott, earlier, now all I hear is hot rod rhino. And I don't know why I've got like a, a music <laughs> thing happening to it. Like it's a commercial that you can buy these little matchbox or match. You know, Sunday, <laughs> Sunday, Sunday. Or even better. Yeah. <laughs> Come like see the hot rod rhino versus Gravedigger. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Uh, I mean, if 1951 Down Place had an official monster <laughs> truck. It would be called the Hot, Wild, Hot Rod Rhino. Uh, but I mean, no sponsorship. <laughs> no, that's what I was going to say earlier when Derek said he had a white rhino shaped hole in his heart. I was going to say, <laughs> you had plenty of time to step out of the way of the white rhino. <laughs> Uh, you do get to see a teeny tiny little blood here. Just a teeny bit. Just a little bit, yes. Just a little bit where, where Kari got stuck with the phallic symbol. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, all is good. I mean, we spend a lot of time fighting in the woods and uh, David saves the day and the now, order what, is restored. And Now, was this the same rhino statue? Because the... the the rhino statue is still there in prehistoric times because now uh, Ted and, and sorry um, have this little touching. I love you. I'll always love you, but you have to go back to your time or you have to go back and I have to lead these women. But the rhino is still there. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. 
something clearly happened after David left. And, you know, we keep talking about the prehistoric times. We know that's what it is because we know what the title of the movie is. But David seems to accept his circumstance and his time traveling very quickly without a lot of freaking out. There's not even a, oh boy, moment. You know, there. it's just... Well, he thinks it's, he's gone through a hole in the wall and all this is still modern time. It's just these people were hiding behind this cave. Sure. They're just <laughs> hiding. <laughs> oh, man. To be fair, I thought that for a little while, too. Well, that's the way it's presented to the viewer, because the yeah. cave wall opens up and he walks through it. Except we know the title. That doesn't matter. He ends up going back to where he was before, and the rhino, well, you know what? I'm just going to leave it hanging. I mean, I know we kind of talked about it a little bit. We pretty much spoiled the whole thing, but all is well. And we get David back out to doing his native guidery stuff. And then there's an amazing twist ending. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry (laughs) that we're not going to be able to tell it to you. (laughs) Oh, wow. I liked her better in a bikini. Oh, much so. Yeah, <laughs> but as as I told you guys before we started recording this film, I enjoyed this film, but for all the wrong reasons. Oh yeah, yes, it is such. It's it's almost bordering on camp in a lot of parts of this film. Totally, almost. This movie, <laughs> I enjoyed this movie as well. For much the same reasons as Scott, I have always enjoyed B movies. There's something about the you know them going all out on something that's you know obviously not very good from the get go, and this really strikes those chords. So in that sense, it was fun. Yeah, I always love a movie that wasn't made to be camp, but ends up being. Yeah, like, they weren't out to try to make some sort of comedy or something, but that's what ended up on screen. They're all trying so damned hard. They're all taking it so seriously and playing it so straight, you know, when the cameras are rolling at least. But, you know, this movie kind of transcends all that. I was talking with Brenda that, you know, when I sat down to watch this movie, um, yeah, I made a comment that I've heard it's not very good, you know, because I've never seen the movie before. This was the first time viewing for all three of us. And, in fact, somebody posted a poster of this. Uh, on Facebook in another podcast Facebook group over at the B Movie Cast, and a comment was made about how it's a terrible movie, and I'm like, oh boy, you know, Scott and Casey and I are going to talk about it on 1951 Down Place, and they're like, well, good luck. You know, I've not heard anything good about it, and when I mentioned to Brenda, you know, I haven't heard it. It was very good. She's like, well, why do you guys bother watching the bad ones? You know, I'm glad we watched this. I had a blast watching this stupidly awful movie. <laughs> Yeah, oh, I, I'm right we, there with and you. We t- and we talked about it uh, before a little bit before we started recording. But there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of gaffes that happen in the background that get left in this movie too, <laughs> from shoddy editing and stuff. There's a scene at the end where they're destroying the temple, and you see the two guys standing out front of the temple. They light the uh, shrubbery on fire, and they turn to run away, and they run smack into each other. And there's a couple of moments like that in this movie, and it's just hilarious. It it helps add to that Ed Wood vibe too. Uh-huh. Oh, yep, very much so. I I had to rewind and watch that again. It was like, did I really see those two guys run into each other? <laughs> <laughs> Oh wow this this movie um, 
I'm going to go back and rewatch this movie on purpose. I think <laughs> it's it's a fun – it's terrible. But now that I know what I'm in for, I think I'm going to enjoy it even more. Yeah. I mean, I think it's obvious to our listeners for us too, especially if you listen to our other shows and whatnot and you've been listening to us over the years. It's okay to like a bad movie. It's okay to enjoy it and have fun. And this is one of those movies that you can have fun with just because of the absurdity of it. Agreed. Yes, agreed. They don't all have to be the Revenant. (laughs) Okay. Wow. Just in case you try to class up this episode, <laughs> mentioning like that Leo, you know, you know, the DiCaprio film. Hey, uh, I want to get serious about it real quick for a moment, though. I mentioned Ambrose Bierce earlier. Um, Scott, you know who? And Casey, do you know who Ambr- Ambrose Bierce? Do you know the name? Yes. Okay, Scott. No, I don't. All right, so he was an author and published a lot in the late 1800s. Uh, wrote a lot of what would eventually be called weird fiction, some horror fiction. Uh, things like that. Okay. Uh, and, and it's good stuff. And I believe the character even turns up in From Dusk Till Dawn 3. He's turned up as a character in From Dusk Till Dawn 3. Anyway, we go from The Revenant to From Dusk Till Dawn 3. He wrote a short story called An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. And it's actually a cool little short story. There's a guy that's about to be executed for some crime on a bridge. And they're going to hang him. And... They, they put the noose around his neck. And the first time I was uh, exposed to this story was watching it as a short film in high school. I would later learn that, that short film would actually be turned into a Twilight Zone episode down the line as well. And I believe you can see this on YouTube. I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, that's where I, I know it from. When you first started describing it, I was like, that's a Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. So they, they put the noose around his neck and they, they this guy's neck and they go to hang him. He's going to be killed. He's going to be executed. He's a criminal. But – he frees himself and runs home and gets back to his life and his plantation and his wife and everything's great. But at the his spoiler, uh, at the very uh, story that was published in 1890, at the end of this episode or this story, there's this like cracking sound or, or some such and he lurches forward and it turns out he never really escaped this was just his brain kind of giving this little fantasy right before the noose breaks his neck and he actually does die. So I'm going to really stretch here because when I was watching prehistoric women, there's a big chunk of it where I'm thinking, is this really happening? Is this all in David's head? Is yeah. this his brain going on a little adventure, this very male wish fulfillment fantasy stylized adventure involving women that he has to save and blondes and brunettes and beautiful uh, women all around and bikinis and he saves the day and there's all there's even a couple of phallic things happening here with the penetration with the pork stick and the way she gets killed at the end. Could this have been all his brain's way of dealing with the fact that he's about to be killed now? At the end, you know, I, that's not really what's happening here. But for a big chunk of it, I'm thinking, are they going to go real serious with this? And could this be like that? I don't know. I, I After seeing the film, I'm kind of glad they didn't. Because oh, sure. Yeah. That would no, not have been a That's way sad, too serious. Yeah, it's no, way yeah. too serious for what we got. Yeah, for well, the rest of the movie, if they would have tried to go that serious, it would have fallen flat big time. Oh, sure. Well, and Hammer doesn't do the downer endings like that anyway. So it's not like – because, I mean, it would be a downer ending because they would be dead at the end. 
But I, I just thought it was a. When the thought occurred to me, it's like, I'm going to class this movie discussion up by bringing up Ambrose Bierce in an episode of The Twilight Zone. <laughs> but then I, I think I ruined it when I started talking about the pork stick. So. I can imagine a movie in this setting with the same plot working like that, but it's not this movie. Oh, no. Not at all. Oh, no. <laughs> not at all. Okay. <laughs> Serious off. Oh, can we go back? <laughs> no more serious <laughs> talk about this movie. Oh, it was so much fun. I actually had a blast with this. I would love to see this on the big screen. I really would. I would be one of those poor souls sticking around till midnight to watch this. You know, at that little 1951 Down Place Film Festival that'll never happen, really. I, yeah. I would sit down to watch that. Oh, I would definitely be watching it and the old Dark House. So, well, that's when I'd be getting popcorn and talking to people in the lobby. That'd be about two in the morning at that point. <laughs> oh, you see, so you'd show this one first. Oh, definitely show this first. Doing me a favor then. Awesome. <laughs> Doing us a solid. <laughs> so now, we had fun watching it, but does it go into the top five? No. no. I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, Scott. What were you going to say? I was just going to say that if you wanted to check this film out, uh, it's kind of difficult to track down a copy of right now. Uh, it's out of print here in the U.S. Uh, oh, the is it? Yeah, the cheapest I found it on Amazon right now for uh, the DVD is $48.38. Now, <laughs> Which is about half the budget of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you are fortunate enough to have a multi-region DVD player, you can pick it up at Amazon.co.uk for £10. Um, it is still in print over there, or you can pick up the Ultimate Hammer Collection DVD set for sixty pounds fifty nine ninety nine. That includes this film, and that's, that's the, an awesome set. And that's how I watched it as part of that set. Off, yeah, yeah, no, me too. That's a really good set. That's basically every Hammer film that wasn't tied up in Warner Brothers, Paramount, or Universal distribution when that DVD came out. That's an awesome set. Really good stuff. And some bad stuff because it's got the Vengeance of She in it and She, but and that's the other <laughs> thing. There is a She vibe in this, right? There's a Vengeance of She vibe in this. Oh, sort yeah. of. Okay, okay. I just want to make sure that I'm not yeah. I, I didn't get it, but then again I've locked all thoughts of She and Vengeance of She away to try not to influence me on any other film. <laughs> Put it in a nice little box high <laughs> up on the shelf. <laughs> the back of my brain. Have okay. a white rhino sit on it. Hot Rod Rhino <laughs> Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. But yeah, Hot it is Rod White Rhino versus the Black Devils. <laughs> so yeah, it is a little hard to get a hold of if you want to see it. But we'd recommend it anyway. If if you are of, <laughs> of the, the the type of person that can. Not take a movie 100% serious all the time. Yeah, I would recommend. Yeah. If you can appreciate Ed Wood, you can appreciate this. Oh, definitely. <laughs> oh, yeah. This, I suspect, would end up in the same camp of things like Moon Zero Two and things like that. It's just not something you can take too seriously. It's not It's not one of their gothic horrors, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Don't expect Frankenstein. Don't expect the old dark house. 
Don't expect competent filmmaking. Don't expect the Spanish Inquisition. No one expects <laughs> it, that. <laughs> I thought the uh, Bruce aspect was uh, interesting. You thought the what? The br- the fact that it was basically the ruling came down to brunettes versus blondes. I thought it was interesting. At one point, they actually said in the history of their tribe that the blondes were in charge at one point. Yeah. I want to see that movie where there's a, the brunettes overthrow the blondes. <laughs> a class war over <laughs> hair color. <laughs> With the royal jello. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying real hard not to say out loud that I would have rather seen the movie about shirts versus skins. But anyway. Um, <laughs> Tops versus bottoms. Oh, God. I said that out loud, oh, didn't I? Oh, no. <laughs> That's a totally other movie. <laughs> on that note, can we close the chapter on the prehistoric women? Close the book on that. <laughs> over the end of the chapter close the book stop the movie if you would like to get a hold of us here at 1951 <laughs> down place to register your complaint about my tops versus bottoms comment you can call us at <laughs> at area code 765-203-1951 or are we going to cover the feedback Oh, yeah, we've got feedback, huh? We've got feedback. We've got a few people that wrote us in at podcast at 1951downplace.com. Now, we've got uh, a few pieces of feedback uh, that have to do with both Pirates of, the Blo- Pirates of Blood River and Kiss of the Vampire. Uh, the stuff for Pirates didn't come in in time to get into our last recording. Uh, the first note we got is from Mike Baker. And uh, he says, now then, guys, a British listener of the podcast here, also a devotee of Hammer Films. I stumbled across the cast about a year ago and have been a fan ever since. I just wanted to leave a comment after listening to your thoughts on The Pirates of Blood River, a genuine guilty pleasure of mine in a film that I'm inspired to watch again this evening. I'm glad you all liked it. Chris Lee's fantastic accent craft, the use of English home countries doubling for the Caribbean and getting away with it if you suspend your disbelief a little bit, and, of course, a substantial role for Sir Michael Ripper, who gleefully chews every bit of scenery he can get his teeth into. I don't think anyone could claim that it's actually very good, but it's a lot of fun and the usual with Hammer, a good exercise in doing a rather lot with very little. Keep up the good work. Right on. Well, that's awesome. You yeah. know, I do wonder every once in a while, and I know at the beginning of this podcast, there was an article written about us in a, in a UK newspaper, or at least we were mentioned in a UK newspaper when it came to must-listen-to podcasts. But I do wonder every once in a while how our show translates to non-American, specifically UK listeners. So that's cool. I'm glad to hear that because, I, you know, we are taking an American approach, a very American approach to these films, as evidenced by this review of this movie this month. <laughs> so thank you. Which That's it, cool. Which, after the show we just did, Mike's comment about uh, Hammer being good at doing rather a lot with very little. Well, I wasn't, yeah. <laughs> May not work all the time, but... <laughs> but that, It happens. It happens. Thanks, Mike, for the, the comments on Pirates of Blood River. We got another 
comment on the same film from Terry Hansen. I he, love this email. He writes, hi, guys. First, let me say that I love the show. It has been at the top of my must-listen for quite a while now. I learned something new. I learned something different every show, so thank you. Second, I've been waiting for Pirates of Blood River to pop up on your list for some time. I first seen this movie late one night on TCM and fell in love with it immediately. It definitely is my top five of all time. Christopher Lee is a French pirate? What's not awesome about that? Third, after getting injured and being out of work, like I have my most, excuse me. Third, after getting injured and being out of work, like I have my most important job right now, is babysitting my six-month-old grandson. I found out that laying him down for a nap is a lot easier if I put an old episode of 1951 down place, and for whatever reason, it helps him sleep. So thanks for helping me babysit. (laughs) (laughs) Again, love the show. Keep up the great work. Terry and and baby Augustus. That's high praise. 1951 down place, putting children to sleep (laughs) since 2000. Good night, Augustus. (laughs) (laughs) No, you can't have a glass of water. <laughs> oh, man. I hope my uh, my giggling and laughing didn't keep uh, Augustus up too much this episode. Now, uh, we also have a couple of pieces of feedback about Kiss of the Vampire. Uh, first. Uh, uh, oh, by the way, hey, before we yeah. get to that. Go ahead. I want to comment on the Kiss of the Vampire episode. Okay. I thought I was being clever when I did the introduction to that episode by going online and looking up videos in which vampires are kissing and pulling the audio from these YouTube videos. In fact, there was some kissing sound effects from Twilight in the intro playing behind me talking about puckering up boys, let's get into Kiss of the Vampires. In retrospect and listening to the final cut, (laughs) it sounded really naughty and I'm sorry. (laughs) Augustus, you'll learn more about that when you get older. (laughs) Anyway, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I I wondered that, but <laughs> like, where did Derek pull this video audio from? <laughs> See, I, and, and you know, I even ended it with the whole "ow," just like, oh god, that's not. Yeah, not my brightest moment. <laughs> I'm a nominee for the Rondo. Can you tell? <laughs> oh my god, is this show's nominated for a Rondo? Yes, it is. <laughs> Congratulations, guys. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going. Let's hear about uh, the Kiss of the Vampire feedback. Yes. Sorry. Uh, Clay- well, way off track with the uh, kissing <laughs> sound effects. Uh, Clayton McCormick, he writes, Hi, guys. First off, thanks so much for plugging Back in the Village, the Prisoner podcast. Much obliged. But yeah, I'm so glad you guys finally got to Kiss of the Vampire, and even more glad that you all enjoyed it. I didn't, I didn't know, I know it didn't break into any of your holy top fives but the thing that really stands out to me is a lot of these movies are new or different ideas and so far as hammer vampire films goes this has it in spades i much prefer this to a lot of the later dracula movies which barely qualify as having plots i can only assume your coverage of scars of dracula will be 60 minutes of extended fart noises (laughs) (laughs) oh wow and if that opening scene doesn't get your full attention nothing will I will say, though, that those bats at the end are really, really silly and probably punching out their FX budget's weight class. (laughs) I was going to end up this email with news that 
I saw something was releasing soundtrack of Dracula AD 1972 on vinyl, but for the life of me, can't find out where I saw that. It may have dreamed it up. Anyway, thanks for the good work. Best, Clay. And then Clay, a few days later, wrote back and said, Hey guys, addendum to my last email. Death Waltz is releasing, in fact, excuse me, addendum to my last email. Death Waltz Records is, in fact, going to be putting out a great-looking vinyl of the soundtrack to Dracula AD 1972. And he provided the list, and we'll try to get the, the link in. He provided a link, and we'll try to get that in the show notes. And he says, at least I'm not crazy in this instance. Best Clay. I love Dracula AD 1972 and the Satanic Rites of Dracula. I know I shouldn't, but I love them a lot. Now, unfortunately, I don't have a record player, so I can't play this soundtrack album, but I'm looking at it now, and the cover looks pretty cool. But the record itself, the LP itself, it's red. It looks bloody. It looks awesome. It's at mondotees.com. And like Scott said, we'll try to remember to put a link in the show notes to this thing. 25 bucks. Looks awesome. It does look pretty cool. And I don't have a record player either. Um, But I do know somebody who has a record player that might help me out. (laughs) (laughs) I've got the soundtrack already. So it's not like I'd be missing out on the music. but. But yeah, the cover looks amazing. The cover is awesome. I don't know who did that artwork. And I know nothing about this film, but just by this cover, I'm like, you know, I kind of want to see this film now. (laughs) I know. I wish we could skip ahead in our Dracula movies, right? (laughs) Well, the cover's got an awesome-looking Carolyn Monroe there in the lower left. I'm just saying. Yeah. And I'm not sure who the woman is on the other side of the title, but... Ah, who is that? I should know that. I watched this movie enough. The one holding the dagger there. Yeah, that is um, that girl. Oh, Stephanie Beecham. Who's that girl? <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah, her. <laughs> no, Stephanie Beecham, um, who uh, did acting. <laughs> <laughs> she did acting and posed for album covers. That's all we know about her. <laughs> yes, she did acting. <laughs> Wow. So thanks, Clayton, for those uh, those words and the link to the soundtrack. Uh, it sounds like uh, it might end up being uh, purchased by at least somebody in this group. It's a cool little film. Is it better than Prehistoric Women? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but like I said, if anybody out there would like to write in to us at any time, that was a podcast at 1951downplace.com. You can also find us at 1951downplace.com. That's our home website where we've got links to all of our previous episodes. If you, for some reason, want to catch up on all of our old shows, we have our uh, top five lists and our uh, upcoming films that we're going to cover as well. Next month, Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll. Directed by Terrence Fisher, starring Christopher Lee. That's going to be awesome. I've not seen it. I have not seen it either. This is where Casey would say whether or not he's seen it. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, another another film that none of us have seen next month. 
I'm looking forward to it though. It's one that I keep meaning to watch, and then every time I sit down to try to, I'm thinking, you know, we're doing the podcast, so I'll hold off. But that should be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Now, Christopher Lee does not play the Jekyll and Hyde character. That's a character, an actor by the name of Paul Massey, which we'll talk about next month. So come back here. Keep it locked in to next Sunday for 1951 Downplace Hot Rod Rhino versus Gravedigger in an all out battle royale. <laughs> wow. You know, Scott, if this whole podcasting thing doesn't work out for you, you could announce monster truck rallies. I think that would work. And it's probably future in that. <laughs> uh, you are in Indiana. That's true. true. <laughs> He's actually in Disney, Indiana. See what I did there? Oh, DisneyIndiana.com is where you can find Scott at his home podcast with his wife, Tracy, every other week talking about Disney, Marvel, Pixar, Lucasfilm, and more Disney. Anything else that the mouse controls. Which is pretty much everything, right? The mouse controls all. <laughs> I'm just waiting for him to buy Hammer Films. Oh, boy. <laughs> for a while there, it was rumored they were going to buy Mattel. I'm surprised that never happened. Can you imagine this part. movie with Minnie Mouse in Martin <laughs> Besbeck's place? <laughs> I was first thinking Jessica yeah, hey, Rabbit. No, no, hey, shh, shh, I need a moment. You will mix my perfume. Stop, stop, stop. I need a moment. <laughs> okay, I'm good. I All was right. first thinking Jessica <laughs> Rabbit, but she's a redhead, so it wouldn't work. Yeah, where's the redhead tribe? It's <laughs> <laughs> the one I'd want to get hooked. Anyway. <laughs> and uh, Casey, um, <laughs> he could be heard over, speaking of red, bloody good horror. Ah, yes. See Look what I that. did there? <laughs> I'm eager to see how Casey segues to me, but go ahead. <laughs> yep, you can find me at Bloody Good Horror every week talking about new horror movies released in the theater. Also, my spinoff show there, Bloody Good Horror, the Instamatic, where we talk about uh, non-horror films for, that are featured on Netflix Instant Watch. I'm planning on watching, uh, talking about the new Pee Wee Herman movie here soon. So, oh. I'm excited for that. I, I'm not. <laughs> and since Derek has bad taste in movies, that's why he runs the Monster Kid Radio. Wow. Over at MonsterKidRadio.com. Wow. Hey, you opened yourself up for it, buddy. Son of a... (laughs) Diss and pee. And it's actually actually monsterkidradio.net. Sorry. That's all right. I would know it better if I was on the show more often. That's true. You probably would. And it occurred to me at the end of the last episode where I talked about what I'm doing in May on Monster Kid Radio, I said you and I need to talk. We haven't done that yet. No. But you and I need to talk. Just put that out there. Okay. I'll put it on my schedule for next year at this time. Okay, sounds good to me. <laughs> That's okay. I'm I'm planning on being on Monster Kid Radio in December, so. <laughs> we'll have you on before then, Scott. Don't be ridiculous. Why would I make a good friend wait that long to be on Monster Kid Radio? Come on. Yeah, why would he do that? <laughs> why? Why? I don't know why, but, man, I'm really looking forward to talking about the movie we got in store for that, though. <laughs> oh, that's going to be awesome. Oh, yeah. Oh. You know how many times I had to go through here uh, talking to him about ideas of show, movies I could talk about on Monster Kid Radio? Well, me and Scott are talking about that already. <laughs> <laughs> okay, tell you what. I'll put it out there right now to make Casey feel better because I can tell his feelings are horrid. 
<laughs> I'm going to invite Casey to be part of May. I have a particular May movie that I want him to watch and have him on the show with. May is my luchador special. Oh, boy. Five weeks of Mexican luchador movies featuring monsters. And I'd like to invite Casey to be on one episode to cover one of the films. What do you think, Casey? You in? Sure. All right. That'll be for May of 2019. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to make me wear a mask, too, so you don't know it's me. (laughs) (laughs) Going to modulate your voice. It's going to sound like somebody else. Well, I'm going to dub him. That's the thing. That's what what these movies do. Yeah. I'll rock a nice sport coat with my uh, luchador mask, though. Now, I know this is fascinating podcasting for the listeners, and I don't want to say it out loud, but I did just send through the Skype messaging a link to the movie that I'd love Casey to come on and cover with us on Monster Kid Radio. It's right beneath the link of the picture of the hot rod rhino I sent earlier. (laughs) Ooh, nice. Yes, I'd be down. Awesome. I figured this was, would be right up your alley. Man, this has got to be awesome podcasting for Hammer fans, right? Is this the point where I'm <laughs> supposed to say I'm jealous of this? You want in? I uh, No. Oh, okay. I'm not sharing my spotlight with Scott. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm just happy that I have been invited to appear with Casey on his show sometime in the future. Yes. So was I. Yes. I asked Scott first, though. (laughs) But you told me I was the prettiest one. (laughs) I don't know. After Scott wore his uh, twerking outfit, native twerking outfit today, I I may have to change that. (laughs) We have to stop. We really have to stop this episode. (laughs) If you're still listening, listeners, thank you for putting up with us. See you next time. I don't know. After we finish our downward spiral. Oh, <laughs> uh, see. Yes. Thanks for listening. We're out. Bye-bye. And I hope you have lots of nice, positive emotions. <laughs> <laughs>